Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the Forensic Psychology and True Crime Podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of delusional parasitosis. Hey there, Dr. Scott. I'm so glad we're back with another delusional disorder. These seem to be some of my favorites for some reason. I I so agree. I was thinking, actually, you know, we were talking about our, our book project, which we really, you know, have started making sort of outlines for. And I yeah. think this could be one entire book itself. I'm not kidding. I really think that there are all these different versions of delusions that play into criminal thinking that could be really a great episode. Super I mean, a great book. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I don't think anybody's going to be walking away today without feeling itchy or crawly. Oh, my God. All right. So quickly, you guys, yesterday I was finishing up some just finishing touches on this episode. And I know this is not like our estheticians sidebar that we normally do on our live stream, but I had gotten a skin treatment done and I know that it was tingly because of that. And I'm texting Scott. I'm like, I am itching all over (laughs) writing this episode. It's giving me the heebie-jeebies. I know it's a lot. So last week's episode, we got super busy, but we were able to crank out an episode that gave us the opportunity to share with you a replay of one of our most popular live streams of our YouTube series, Behind the Couch. And this was from July of 2022, which seems like a decade ago. And in that interview, we spoke with the always impressive forensic psychologist, Dr. John Delatore. Impressive, impressive guy. So impressive across the board. So July 2022, which does seem like a decade ago, (laughs) was the height of the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamation hearings. And there was a lot of discussion and controversy about how the narrative of that proceedings intersected with the legal system and entertainment business and a lot of discussions about intimate partner violence and relationship dynamics and personality disorders and and all sorts of stuff. (laughs) Right. So we just thought that it would be the perfect time to share that with you because because the documentary about the trial is is about to drop or has dropped already. So please take a listen to last week's episode to get up to speed. I think it's still very topical. After releasing that episode, we got a couple of emails hmm. that were interesting. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it's I think people are going to get triggered by this, but I stand by what we discussed. I think we were pretty even in our approach to that episode. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to discuss and and all joking aside, like there's a ton of layers to it. I mean, so many psychological issues. And at the time, John was doing a lot of commentary just on the daily for the trial. And so he really was like, had his finger on the pulse. And again, like it's a, it's a time capsule of July of last year. I wasn't following the trial super closely. And then I, I haven't watched the documentary, it'd be interesting to see in the documentary, you know, how they sort of make sense of it all. If they bring mental health professionals in, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to watch it, but if someone thinks it's interesting and maybe I should let me know. But yeah, it's just always timely. I think just a lot of the issues discussed. Yeah. But moving on, we probably will circle back around to it for some sort of discussion because, you know, it's been back and forth on our discord channel, like, because it there's for one thing, there's so many smart people on our channel. Oh well, yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot of really interesting points that I think, like you said, that was a time capsule. So now a year later or the decade later, there is a bigger discussion that happens about it that is fascinating. So we'll see what happens. Yes. So getting into today's topic, first and foremost, we want to give huge props to Justin at the Peripheral Podcast. This is 
Justin from Generation Y. He has this other show, The Peripheral, where he talks to some really interesting people who have gone through some incredible life obstacles. And it is just raw and authentic and just very interesting conversations with folks. And he recently did an episode where he spoke to a family member of a person experiencing this type of delusional disorder. And it gave us the idea to bring you this topic and dive in a little bit more. It's interesting, heartbreaking, just a wonderful listen. So please go and listen. And I think it's a great companion piece to all the clinical stuff that we're going to give you today. Also, we were just recently on the peripheral talking in depth with Justin about our work in sex offender treatment. So please be sure to check that out as well, um, especially since, you know, most of you listeners know that Shiloh and I started together in an internship, but Dr. Shiloh spent almost an entire decade beyond that working yeah. in that milieu and, you know, your level of expertise and, and points about that particular subject, I think are very valuable. So please go back and give it a listen. Yeah, it was nice to go back and revisit that a little bit more. So for today, our trigger warnings are going to consist of warning you that there are going to be descriptions of extreme self-harm behaviors and descriptions of insects in and around the hair and skin. So if that is squeegee to you, please listen with care today. Please. And we we have a lot of information for you, as well as some of the criminal aspects and entertainment presentations of this disorder. And all nervous giggling aside, there are, you know, about the same number of people who experience this disorder in the U.S. as experience MS or multiple sclerosis. So it's, it's a very real experience. Let me say that. Yep. So whatever it is, it's a really real, very real experience for some individuals. So delusional parasitosis is also known as ECBOMS syndrome or delusional infestation. So it can go by DP for delusional parasitosis, or it can go by DI as delusional infestation. It's a psychological disorder, and it's mainly characterized by the individual's belief that they're infested with parasites such as mites, fleas, lice, worms, or other unidentified organisms, despite no concrete evidence that will support this. And the term has also been used in a partially correct way when describing an individual's belief that their body is producing substances or inorganic particles that are burrowing their way through the skin to the surface. Now, before we go any further and piss any listeners off, we're going to start with a description of DP, delusional parasitosis, explore the controversy, and then outline the research that actually supports the experience that is objectively true that a small subsection of this population has had. Yes. So if that's clear as mud for you guys, just follow along right. <laughs> and we'll get into it. So in some cases, individuals grappling with delusional parasitosis might resort to extreme measures to essentially eradicate perceived parasites from their environment or their bodies. And this could lead to acts such as excessive use of toxic chemicals, self-harm, or compulsive cleaning rituals. And while these actions stem from a place of genuine distress and belief in the reality of the infestation, they can inadvertently result in harm to themselves or their surroundings. Such behaviors may not be criminal in intent, but they could potentially lead to legal consequences or intervention if they pose a danger to themselves or to others. The majority of people that experience this disorder are middle-aged to older females. However, younger individuals, both male and female, can also fall prey to this condition, 
with research over the past two decades indicating that veterans may have similar experiences. There's current research that is indicating a significant number of patients with this disorder have a current or a previous history with substance use. So here's a rundown of the most significant identifying factors for individuals with DP or DI. First of all, patients rarely visit psychological or psychiatric clinics. Yeah. I mean, that's on par with what we see with other delusional disorders. Absolutely. Absolutely. These individuals often reject alternative diagnoses. They prefer and get fixated on the diagnosis that they find acceptable. And that's usually bolstered by their own internet research. As Dr. Shiloh said earlier, predominantly the patients are women over the age of 50, and there may be underlying neuropathy or dermatological issues that can be misidentified as a parasitic infestation. You know, I think there's an interesting side note here to the point that you're making is that some medical doctors, if someone with this disorder presents in front of them, might actually refer them out to a specialist like a dermatologist, not really knowing what to do with it. And then that ends up starting this cycle, this sort of legitimacy is lent to their claims because, oh, now I'm being referred to a specialist exactly. for you know, the person suffering from this disorder and they're thinking, oh, great. Okay. Someone else agrees with me that something's there. Yeah. So DI is not purely psychosomatic, but it can stem from what we call neuropathy. I think probably most people are familiar with the term neuropathy, but basically it's neuropathy of some form generally tends to happen with people as they get older. It can stem from severe arthritis. It certainly, unfortunately, is very common in people with severe diabetes conditions. It's where there's a constant prickling or tingling or burning in the extremities, so hands and feet predominantly, and that can be misinterpreted by some people. They may have a form of neuropathy, not realize it, and they may think that they've got an infestation of some kind. It can also stem from dermatological conditions, like Dr. Shiloh said, drug abuse, or even in the case of more severe mental disorders like schizophrenia or hypochondriasis. So schizophrenia has a, a, a subset of symptoms as well called tactile Mm-hmm. delusions or tactile hallucinations, but usually those are the experience of feeling things on top of the skin rather than underneath the skin. Very strange differentiation there, but it's actually important. And interestingly, the most successful treatment for this comes from using antipsychotic medications. Even if it's a mild antipsychotic, it just sort of turns down the volume in a sense mm-hmm. on the delusion itself. But if left untreated, Patients can transition from acute seeking of treatment, like going like doctor shopping in a way to a chronic acceptance of the condition. And then Mm. what we see this is really problematic is when they actually start to really identify with the condition, they find online groups that like gang stalking or some of these others, they find groups that support them in this belief system. Fascinatingly, it doesn't affect any other part of the cognitive process. So mental abilities are fully intact and hallucinations, actual hallucinations in these individuals are very, very rare, except for those tactile or touch sensations. The patients do make irrational claims and they can identify completely harmless objects as parasites and exhibit what we call pressured speech, um, which is probably what you hear when you listen to me talk because I'm so (laughs) ADD, I talk really fast. But one of the most common cases for that will happen with people who have DI 
will be they will misidentify fabric or textiles that somehow got under their skin. Like mm -hmm. men who wear tidy whities can often get cotton threads burrowing into their skin, which is actually quite dangerous because if Gosh. you get an infection like that, runs rampant through a man's system, which is not good. But I will talk more about sort of what patients will do when they go into doctors with these quote unquote samples. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that pressured speech is an indicator as well, like you were saying. But like several other disorders that we have covered on LA Not So Confidential, individuals with DP typically display outward behaviors that align the community at large. So in many ways or in other domains of their life, they may have great successes and are yeah. otherwise quite functional. The prevalent theme among most patients is their vivid description of the sensation of an infestation, often locating it either directly on the skin surface, slightly below, maybe around bodily orifices, or even internally, particularly with the digestive system. A significant aspect of the fixed beliefs of these individuals is the conviction that the parasites they are experiencing internally have also infested the patient's surroundings, particularly the home, meaning they believe that their clothing, bedding, and furniture can all be infested as well. So the typical profile of a DI or a DP patient involves a pretty significant period of their grappling with the infestation delusion during which they have likely consulted numerous medical experts, including parasitologists, entomologists, and exterminators even. A lot of patients recount prior encounters with healthcare professionals, and they describe them as indifferent, dismissive, and even sometimes derisive of their concerns, and that those medical professionals lack competence in their attempts to address their concerns regarding the infection or the supposed infestation. And in many situations, less compassionate or experienced professionals absolutely can come off this way to patients. And that's certainly not going to help somebody that already has this fixed belief. Right. So again, this mimics the other styles, styles, I guess, of delusions that we've covered where yeah, exactly. the person consults with someone and then that person doesn't align with their beliefs and they spin the narrative that that professional is incompetent or how, however they need to fill in the gaps. I think if our listeners will recall, I had a patient one time that was convinced that their spouse was cheating oh, excessively right. with a lot of people in the workplace and had ended up hiring a private investigator to follow their spouse. And when they came back to the next session with me, we said, you know, we started talking about, okay, well, you know, did you get some evidence? Cause I'm looking at anxiety symptoms and if that's being relieved or not. And my client was like, no, I mean, it's a really incompetent private investigator, right, yeah. private investigator. They didn't get any evidence. There's nothing I could use. You know, I fired them immediately sort of thing. So yeah, it's not that it's deliberate, right? That they don't believe that, you know, that person can help them out because there's nothing really there to help out on. It just starts filling the narrative of the delusion. I had a, a client one time who was convinced that an ex-girlfriend was breaking into his apartment and moving mm. things around and not stealing anything. 
things, just moving them around and making them not work. Like it was her fault that like the radio wasn't working or the TV huh. wasn't working and you could never catch her and the alarm companies. So I had, I thought that I was being so clever in this intervention. And I said, well, why don't you use cameras? Oh, I already have cameras. And he would show me video and he'd say, like, did you see that? Did you see that blur? Yep. Mm. And I was like, there, I don't see the blur. He goes, no, there was a blur. She did. She was able to do something to the camera. Wow. So you, you have to be really careful. And I'm not sure there's actually a concrete answer about working with these fixed delusions, but you have to be really careful not to reinforce it inadvertently Sure. by supporting the process. Like you were trying to address the anxiety and yet here we go. Like we may have added to it. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a good bit of research in this recurring narrative with the Minnesota Department of Health, who was flooded with calls from DP patients recounting such experiences. And interestingly, these calls tend to escalate during the winter months. So we can look at that. And they determined, you know, this really parallels with a couple of things here, higher levels of indoor heating, which equals higher levels of increased dryness in home and work environments, and therefore our skin. <laughs> and in many of these examples, individuals submit an abundance of samples. And I'm saying samples in air quotes mm. because they're ranging from things like human tissue and lint to scabs and dust, all in the hopes of having these objects identified as parasitic entities. It's so fascinating because I remember living in Chicago for three years and all of the heat in the apartments was radiator heat. Oh, so yeah. it was like one giant radiator that heated an entire building and it was either on or off. So it could be... <laughs> 20 below outside and it was 85 in your apartment Ugh. and you have to put pots of water on top of the radiator to keep moisture in the air. Oh but gosh. think about this. So here you are, you're talking about Minnesota with these really harsh winters. They've got this dry air and then they believe they have an infestation. So what do they do? They start cleaning rigorously, which further strips all the moisture from their mm -hmm. skin, which is going to increase that. that feeling of itchiness and dryness. Oh, it's it's got to be horrible for them to experience. Yeah. And so medical doctors use the term matchbox sign when patients bring in small fibers or items that they believe are worms or parasites coming out of their body. And they put them in small containers like matchboxes to show the doctor during the visit. And within the medical community, the matchbox sign, so-called matchbox sign, inevitably indicates delusional parasitosis to them. Like the majority of people with fixed delusions, the patients strongly reject any conclusions that would disprove their beliefs, even when provided by those who examine these samples and give solid explanations for what the items actually are. Unfortunately, then in severe instances, we see self-harm behaviors emerge, primarily located in the areas the patients can easily access, revealing the patient's efforts to extract the imagined parasites. I, so this is another, like, this is how old I am. Shortly after moving to LA, I had been here a few years and we had the Northridge earthquake, yep. which was huge and terrifying and just destroyed enormous buildings. And it was really rough. And my buddy a guy that i waited tables with at this restaurant in west hollywood his apartment literally collapsed on him he was house sitting mm. for another friend of mine the apartment collapsed on him and he needed a place to stay so 
I had no idea that this friend was a complete meth addict and I should have known. Oh boy. Just yeah. Like he was so jumpy and I mean, he's hilarious. And he was like, Oh, I'll take three shifts in a row. You know, he'd like just work nonstop. But my roommate at the time, Shondor, it was a two bedroom, one bath. And Shondor comes in, he goes, I need to get in the bathroom. And your friend has been in there for three hours. What is going on? What? And we were like knocking on the door and I'll, I, I won't say his name. I'll say it's Stevie. Stevie, Stevie, you need to open the door. Stevie, what's going on? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Finally, we like push the door open and it's like a complete steam room because he's had the hot water running for hours and there's a huge hole in his leg. And he's (gasps) he's convinced that there's an ingrown hair and he's been plucking, plucking at it for hours and hours and hours. He goes, I know it's, it's just itching like crazy. I know if I can get it out. It was so horrible. It's like a just blood everywhere. Sorry, listeners. I know we're getting real, but like again it was that meth experience of feeling that he had an ingrown hair and there wasn't anything there and it was oh it was just awful it's remembering it it's like it's so vivid when i think about that yeah well there i mean meth bugs is a thing where you know they they definitely believe that's a sensation or it's part of the psychosis that they're happening at the time and there can be a lot of picking and self-harm i'll I'll just stick to self-harm well yeah like the other term is speed bumps and then they start getting itchy and you know if you if you're that far gone with a substance in your system you can really misinterpret that experience yeah definitely in general delusions can be caused by so many different factors brain damage organic wiring, severe illnesses, and individual brain structures. And the effects can affect many different processes within our brains, including distorted sensory perception, as well as recognition of faces or objects, decision-making, reasoning, memory, and self-monitoring. You know, a lot of the things that we've covered in our other delusional disorder episodes. And while delusions can stem from brain disorders like toxic or nutritional encephalopathy, a significant association exists between the development of delusions and lesions located in the right cerebral hemisphere. A very big part of content-specific delusions like those related to sexuality or somatic experiences come from damage in the right frontal lobes. Now, not everyone with right hemisphere lesions will manifest delusions, but in patients with considerable brain degeneration, even a small solitary obstruction in the right cerebral hemisphere could lead to confusion and creation of a fixed belief in incorrect information. It's why strokes can be so devastating. You know, strokes can cause paralysis, full paralysis, partial paralysis, but people forget that it can also affect the overall mood and the overall cognitive functioning of individuals. So what actually happens in the brain during the experience of these delusions, it's never a simple answer because what we call delusions can manifest in different ways or subtypes. And each of those can engage actually in very specific and different brain areas. So it's not all the same brain area that gets stimulated. In Capgrass delusion, you'll remember our previous episodes on Capgras or Capgra, where the individual has the delusion of a familiar individual or loved one being replaced by an identical double, whether it's another person, a robot, an alien, an android. And Capgra is due to a reduction of activity in the area called the posterior cingulate cortex. So with most other delusions, the right frontal cortex is functionally associated with illusions regardless of the content, right? Whatever the fixation is. The areas that are most affected 
by general delusions. Here's a lot of brain terms, which is so fascinating. I still Hang have in my, there. I know. I still have my brain coloring book from grad school. So the most affected are the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the left and right superior temporal gyrus, the left middle and inferior temporal gyrus, right and left posterior cingulate gyrus, right amygdala, and right and left fusiform gyrus. Okay. We've completely <laughs> blown it. out our textbook for speech for this episode. I promise no more. There's enough oh. in that sentence alone. <laughs> yes, man. I love neuropsych so much. But I wasn't going to be able to hang with that for my lifetime. <laughs> well, I got to say, too, like, you know, most of the ne the neuropsychs that I know are so brilliant and they, oh, are, they share a lot of interesting personality quirks. I Indeed. Think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes. So good. And I worked for one for two full years in, in our practicums and man, I could write a book. So, okay, we're going to get into the most well-known version of delusional parasitosis here. So the name Morgellons comes from a letter written in 1674 by Sir Thomas Brown, an English physician. The letter contains a brief description of a skin disease in French children Dr. Scott, if you would please give us his quote. Hairs which have most amused me have not been in the face or head, but on the back, and not in men, but children. As I long ago observed in that endemial distemper of little children in Languedoc, called the Morgellons, or the Morgellons, wherein they critically break out with harsh hairs on their backs, which takes off the unquiet symptoms of the disease and delivers them from coughs and convulsions. Very strange description of like kids yeah. breaking out. Like, are they little werewolves or what? <laughs> I don't know. It was 1674. True. It's been a it's lot of time. It's passed. It's September 1st. It's spooky season as True. most people are concerned as we record this. But it's very controversial condition that continues to be described in current research literature as a, quote, poorly comprehended condition. And it's characterized by the generation and expression of knot or thread fibers beneath the skin. Although some of the fibers have later been identified as microscopic textile fibers that were ground into and absorbed by the patient's body, there are examples that fit the biology of the patient and then some that are just inexplicable. Those affected often describe sensations of crawling, biting, or mm. stinging sensations throughout the body, and the medical community remains divided regarding Morgellons' nature. While some experts consider it a physical ailment, others propose it might be a manifestation of delusional parasitosis. Medical professionals have also referred to Morgellons as, quote, an unexplained dermopathy, indicating a skin disorder without a known cause, while some have termed it also as fiber disease. The predominant complaint amongst those with Morgellons pertains to distressing skin sensations. This includes feelings of bugs moving under the skin, sensations of burning or stinging beneath the skin, intense itching, and the spontaneous emergence of slow healing skin sores that often leave prominent hyperpigmented scars. Some individuals even report the presence of thread-like fibers embedded in the skin. And let me tell you, the research for this episode, I saw close-up pictures oh, in God journal articles you. that were, and I'm not easily skeeved out. Like I, you know, if I'm in an emergency situation, I can deal with blood, gore, all that kind of stuff. But looking at these photos is like these, these people are in pain. 
whatever it is, whatever it is. But in addition to skin-related symptoms, some Morgellons patients express a range of other complaints. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't chuckle when I say that, but they really do have a range of other complaints. And these can include difficulties in concentration, uh, having excessive fatigue, hair loss, joint, muscle discomfort, issues within the nervous system, tooth loss, sleep disturbances, and short-term memory lapses. And previously, relatively obscure, Morgellons has gathered attention throughout investigations led by the CDC and other health agencies in response to scattered reports. So it's primarily observed in California, Texas, and Florida, but patients have been identified in all 50 states of the U.S. So CDC research confirms our earlier bullet points, and it shows that middle-aged white women are the most susceptible and a substantial number of patients display somatic concerns, and that's indicative of obsessive health-related anxieties. And while this controversy over the classification as a disease or a delusion persists, the CDC study does conclude that the condition does not arise from infection or environmental factors. Laboratory analysis of skin fibers from these patients revealed predominantly cotton fibers akin to those found in clothing or bandages. And the study also highlighted that the skin lesions are likely the outcome of prolonged skin picking and scratching. So while the CDC report neither confirms nor denies the existence of a new condition like Morgellons, it does not intend to conduct further research on the matter. So the CDC is basically like, okay, we feel like we've given this enough mm-hmm. look and we're closing the book on it. Yeah. So there are some other areas they looked at as well. And although initial speculation suggested a link between Morgellons and Lyme disease due to shared symptoms, the CDC research did not cooperate this connection, nor did it find evidence of Lyme infection in the studied individuals. Similarly, though, some research posited a potential association between Morgellons and underactive thyroid function. Further investigation Mm -hmm. is needed to substantiate this hypothesis, though. And additionally, parallels between Morgellons and bovine digital dermatitis, a cattle condition triggered by infection, have been identified. However, just know that limited conclusions can be drawn from these initial studies. And I just want to give you a pretty lengthy quote here from the CDC research. A significant portion of DP patients embark on a journey of trial and error, experimenting with an array of remedies, some of which involve the use of potentially hazardous levels of pesticides. These efforts are often meticulously documented, complete with detailed records and diagrams depicting the alleged parasites. In some cases, the medical history of the patient is so persuasive that it extends its grip to family members who subsequently adopt a shared delusional perspective. Additionally, it's not uncommon to encounter accounts of these individuals engaging in excessive cleaning and disinfection rituals within their home environment, a manifestation possibly stemming from an urgency to counteract the presence of the envisioned parasites. So we're getting a little taste of what we're going to talk about in our criminal case here. But before you tell your next story, because I know you have another story, do you remember when Joni Mitchell was found to be suffering from Morgellons? Yeah. And like, it was really serious with her, but she's had also like, like, didn't they find her unconscious? Yeah. So it was 2015. She was 71 at the time and they found her unconscious at home in Los Angeles, but she had previously written about it in her book. Her book is titled Joni Mitchell in her own words that 
like at the height of what she called her battle with this condition that she literally couldn't wear any clothes. She said, quote, all the time, it felt like I was being eaten alive by parasites living Mm. under my skin. Mm. I couldn't leave my house for several years. Sometimes it got so bad, I couldn't walk and I'd have to crawl across the floor. My legs would cramp up just like I was having a polio spasm. So gosh, I mean, it sounds awful. I mean, it's always interesting when a celebrity is kind of plagued with something that we're like, "Mm, is this a thing or not? Because I don't know. That's a whole other thing to explore is that we kind of, it can go a couple of ways. You either it lends some credence to it because we have parasocial relationships that we feel like, oh, this person wouldn't be perhaps making this up or what have you, or people can write it off as to like, eh, she's kind of a weird hippie anyway. What What's going on over there? You know, you know it, it makes me think there's a really great regular article in the New York Times magazine, and it's like medical mysteries. And there was one from a decade ago that just really kind of punched me. I've only ever had... I mean, like, it's funny, this comes from from being, you know, my career as a dancer, one of the things you do as a dancer or a gymnast, or even any kind of professional athlete, you know, you develop a high tolerance for pain, you really do. So like, I had to actually teach myself as an adult, like, no, that's actually a bad pain, and I need to go to the Mm. doctor for it. But when you hear these descriptions of people with Morgellons or Morgellons, you know, it's and especially when Joni Mitchell is talking about it, like that level of pain, it really just, you know, it really comes across so strongly. And I remember there was this article in that I was talking about these medical mystery articles, and there was a woman with this unbelievable chronic pain, and she got framed as doctor shopping, and she was an opioid addict, and she was this and she was that. And finally found a doctor that was willing to work with her. And it was a neurologist. And the neurologist realized that all of it started after a car wreck. And there were no exterior injuries. But there was so much trauma to her body slamming against the restraints to keep her safe. It's like she didn't have a concussion. She didn't didn't have a, a head concussion. But the neurologist basically said... That trauma rewired her entire neuro- neurological system Wow! to pain. So Gosh. it was like she was just basically every nerve was on fire. And so they developed a protocol and they used like standard, you know, Western medicine, mm-hmm. as well as some like ways to lower anxiety and basically had to rewire her body. And people can go, oh, that sounds so woodly doodly. But, you know, if you go to a physical therapist because your hips won't stay in alignment, yeah. they'll have you say they'll do. No, you need to do these baby exercises of lift your right hand and your left foot because we need to teach your brain to use these neural pathways again. So I can't help but wonder if Morgellons is some version of this. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, we're kind of, you and I are obviously looking from the, the mind, the psychology side of things. And we're always talking about like, why can't people just think of the mind and body more as one, whether it's trying to take apart stigma related to seeking mental health. Yes. But then I feel like on the other side of the medical field, sometimes they need to also look at like, this isn't just the, like what your tests are showing or what bodily functions are happening. Like this is a mind body blend going on here. And, well, especially uh, look, we talked about for women. I mean, we're, we're, we have got a oh, paragraph yeah. on this later, but the whole experience of women having endometrial pain right. is 
like, why are we only starting to really talk about that in the last decade? I mean, the women have been so marginalized for like, suck it up, deal with it. You're not in that much pain. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, maybe we need to change the dialogue about this, you know? Yeah. Well, just before you you tell your story, I thought it was really interesting because in the article I was reading about Joni Mitchell's experience, they were saying that really Morgellons only kind of made a first appearance in 2006 in California, like is where it all sort of started popping up. And that was according to CDC, you know, aligning with what you said, like they had these, you know, three very distinct states where this was happening. But I think that piece is so interesting. Yeah, I don't. But then again, it's also an issue of reporting. Like maybe this was happening in other dry areas. I mean, it's interesting because you would think, well, okay, certainly your skin gets dry during the winter months when you're using indoor heating Mm -hmm. and work and home environments. But what about Flagstaff, Arizona, where it's hot and dry constantly or Palm Springs? Yeah. Why wouldn't you? I mean, so that there's a little bit of a confounding issue to that. I don't have another big story. It was just a a sort of more of an anecdote of working with a, a client years ago in my training site as an NFT and his mother. Now, now that I have this information, I realize his mother must have had some version of this because she would be obsessed with like something itching her skin. And she would always try mm-hmm. and get family members to put like just tons and tons of lotion on her back. And what's that like lidocaine, you know, like the oh, topical anesthetic yeah. that you can buy over the counter. So you would like and even try to get her granddaughters and her teenage granddaughters would be like, no, grandma, we're done. We're not doing mm. like very so, sad. It is sad. I mean, whether this is a delusion or not, just like when we treat the anxiety, the psychological pain around a delusional disorder, I mean, to them, the physical sensations and the pain yeah. is real. So as we dive into some more review of the literature here, just some other things that we want to mention, delusional parasitosis is estimated to affect approximately 100 to 250,000 people in the US, as you said before, rivaling the numbers of even something like multiple sclerosis, which we hear about way more. Right. That's very significant. Patients who assert that these severe and chronic symptoms are present, again, will report itching, crawling sensations, which is the term formication. That's formication with an M. Right. (laughs) That's very interesting because ants excrete formic acid. If you get an ant bite, that sting comes from formic acid. So maybe that's where it came from. I don't even know how you know that, but (laughs) (laughs) you are constantly surprising me of the things that, have you studied bugs as well? No, okay, here's what's so dumb about it. You know why I know about that? It's so dumb. I know because there's a terrible horror movie with Joan (laughs) Collins. I think it's from the early seventies. It was called Empire of the Ants. And I think that they were, I, I know, I think they were like giant ants because of radiation or nuclear bombs or something and all of the victims are found burned by formic acid and like all throughout the script they keep going there's formic acid burns i can smell formic acid there's formic acid formic 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 over and over again (laughs) don't step in the formic acid so that's how my brain my sad weird brain works with all this useless information any 
obscure Joan Collins movies in my head. Completely makes sense now. So horror <laughs> film from the 70s. Got, oh, it. got it. I got it. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So patients who assert these severe and chronic symptoms will report itching, crawling, and often pick at their skin or use harsh topical treatments in efforts to remove the parasites whom they subsequently blame for the actual damage to their skin. While the disorder itself does not inherently involve criminal acts, of course, there have been instances where individuals suffering from delusional parasitosis have engaged in behaviors that could be perceived as criminal due to the distressing nature of their delusions. And in the most egregious example we could find via research. Oh, and thank you, nephew Joel, with full access to the EBSCO <laughs> journal database. I could, I only hey. have the site journals. He has all the criminal and law journals <gasps> as well. So he could send me PDFs. Oh, I love it. Yes. All of, our, all of our grad school students here. I know, I know. Another dimension where criminality might intersect with delusional parasitosis is when individuals engage in confrontations or altercations with medical professionals or even friends or family who don't share their belief in the infestation. So the frustration and anxiety caused by the inability to convince others of their perceived reality, then coupled with their very real discomfort, whether it's medical or mental, can sometimes lead to aggressive behavior or threats. And this can lead to a variety of different types of charges. So you could imagine assaults, harassment, maybe something just like disturbing the peace, depending on the severity of the situation and the jurisdiction that they are in. So the most shining example of this comes from years ago in France, as far as a criminal case is concerned. This is the one that is found in research articles, but there is a parallel to something very recent that was happening way more often. So in 1967, a 58-year-old woman was admitted to a hospital in France after attempting to shoot her family doctor with a hunting rifle. And fortunately, she missed him with the shots. But then she proceeded to beat him about the head and neck with a stick. And, you know, the doctor was fully understanding that she was not physically well and she was not mentally well. So he declined to press charges. But the woman had been really experiencing symptoms of delusional parasitosis for a number of years. And she was getting more and more frustrated. And specifically, her complaints centered on the idea that small animals or insects had swarmed under her scalp and then then burrowed into her skin and she claimed that she could hear them moving around and could at times see them moving under her skin and in her hair. So after combing through her hair, she would then present the doctor with what she called specimens in, you guessed it, a matchbox. And then there were other narratives to her delusion that included she had contracted scabies from her cat and that other people in her village were even infested. And as with many acts of violence, there seemed to be a slow burn of events that led to the perceived grievance with authorities and medical professionals. So this woman had sought help from everyone she could get really to listen to her. She went to the police and her town's mayor, all while what is reported to be harassing her family doctor for over two years. And her delusion grew into the narrative that the doctor had actually organized a plot against her and that he was responsible for her symptoms. And this is when it gets dangerous, right? Yes. When, when you start looping in those layers of delusions. Absolutely. And when there's a target. So it didn't help anything that her husband also began to share this particular part of the belief. Folie de anyone? Yep. He went on to threaten the doctor's life after his wife was admitted to the hospital following the initial attack. However, 
Interestingly, while her hospitalization stay went on, his convictions gradually disappeared and he didn't believe. So what we have here is so typical in Foley Adu is if you separate the two individuals. Yeah. The one who is the primary driver of the delusion will have less and less effect on the secondary partner, which in this case was the husband, even though I think the husband is reported to have a pretty severe alcohol problem. It sounds like yes. as soon as she was removed, you know, he started realizing, oh, the, the house is not infested like she said it was. Right, right. And we do know a bit about her history. She was born in Brittany, France in 1909. She was born into modest means and received a poor education, hardly being able to read into adulthood. Her mother was reported to suffer from alcoholism and died from complications from dementia at the age of 68. Oh, that's early. Her father had died by suicide in his 50s, and her husband had spent five years as a prisoner of war in Germany and was also reported to have abused alcohol. And they had two daughters, which there were a lot of reports from family that she had a very difficult time raising those daughters. And I'm guessing she did a lot of that on her own. Mm. So those around her stated in follow-up interviews and research that she had become progressively more irritable. She started developing pretty severe and chronic sleep problems and showing what they were calling abnormal behaviors, but there's not a lot of research about what those behaviors were. This is a very, like they don't even identify, these are all journal articles and they keep yeah. her identity uh, a secret. She had had insomnia for at least a week before the attack on her doctor. And over the years, she was considered for release from the hospital. It's unclear as to whether she actually was ever fully released, but she had attempted to die by suicide a number of times. So 24 years after her initial admission, she was found to be in the same government-run mental hospital, having significant symptoms of cognitive impairment and what we call tardive dyskinesia, which is it's a neurological condition that involves a lot of shaking and repetitive behaviors. It's usually comes from using antipsychotics. Back then, they really didn't have a number of medications. I think they had, what was it? Not Depakote, but mm. God, what's the one that they call the something shuffle? I'm not sure, but it also can look like like a lot of ticks, facial ticks, lips. Like snacking. biting the lips and yeah. blinking or grunting. Yeah. She was treated throughout with all the current neuroleptics and antipsychotics of the day. And it unfortunately didn't seem to have much significant impact on her symptoms, which is kind of amazing because we've yeah. come so far since then. And even some of the, the lower dose antipsychotics can actually have a, a really significant impact on delusions. Fascinating, fascinating story. Yeah, interesting um, case study. I, I was love just coming across case studies in journal articles when, yeah. you know, like you said, essentially they looked back at all of the documentation that was taken on this patient throughout her years there and just sort of recapped all of that. I couldn't help but think of an incident that happened right in the middle of COVID when there were a lot of deaths and many of the deaths were from people that were not taking any precautions. And this was pre-vaccine and people were very angry and people were also having to die alone. Like they couldn't have family members in the right. hospital rooms. And there was a big report where a gentleman died, typical profile, white guy, late 50s, early 60s, overweight, heavy smoker. You know, that's like a death sentence at the time for that first version of COVID. So 
He came, he did not believe that COVID was a real thing. His family didn't real, didn't believe it. He died on intubated on a ventilator. The doctor goes out to the parking lot to break the news to the family and his wife punches him, like knocks him out. He falls on the asphalt and gets a concussion because he slams his head against the, so then the family was like ready to attack him and security jumped in. So, you know, I'm not saying that's a full delusion, but I think that like you were saying that distrust in authority figures yeah, and the idea that we've got to be mad at somebody or somebody's got to be to blame. So we're going to use this person as the target for our anger. Mm. There's a lot of discussion in the medical community about that term matchbox sign that we mentioned earlier. I mean, unfortunately, the popularization of terms like this can tend to minimize the personal experience that the client is having, whether or not they actually are experiencing either a tactile delusion or legitimate condition. So there's only three case studies that talk about fibers in or under the skin. In one study, researchers discussed grayish spots under the skin, and they use special tools to study them and found fibers similar to those from a washing machine and, interestingly enough, dog hair. Right. So upon further examination, they discovered elements like carbon, sulfur, and oxygen, which are present in keratin, a protein found in hair. However, they couldn't identify the exact type of keratin. And based on how they looked, the authors guessed that these fibers were from the patient's dog, but they really couldn't prove it further. And since some of the fibers were like small hairs, it's important to know that whether or not, you know, they're from humans or they're from dogs. I know sometimes my dog has the most coarse hair and I've legit gotten a piece just perpendicular stuck in my heel. And it's like, there's a needle in there. (laughs) It's actually really dangerous, please. Yeah. Yeah, Ellie's, she's, she's not a, uh, she's not a comfortable pet. No, she isn't for many reasons, but the test showed similarities between human and dog hair on the outside and chemically when they did further examination. And then another study found a black fiber on the skin, but they lost it while they were checking it. And yet another researcher found fibers in a tooth's lesion, but they weren't sure if it was actually implanted there. Since dental floss is made of nylon fibers, these also could have come from flossing and caused a problem, which is what I'm going to tell my dentist next time I go. I just can't floss anymore because- Because I have morgelons. (laughs) Morgelons. I hate flossing. It's so gross. I do it, but it's disgusting. It's important. I know. When it comes to looking for disease-causing agents, the studies varied, but all of them- missed checking for a certain type of infection. Only two studies checked for a specific infection, and really neither of them did a thorough lab analysis to find these agents or break them down into their chemical components. The way they describe their test really isn't detailed enough, and this is a problem in the science since others should be able to repeat those tests for accuracy, and it doesn't help like what you were mentioning earlier that like, okay, we found this fiber and now we lost it. Like, how are you going to, you're certainly not going to be engendering uh, confidence from your your patients when you do that. One study mentioned that the patient had had some changes in bodily fluids, but they didn't explain the results of that test either. So again, this is important for good science practice. And maybe, I mean, that's interesting. If you're you're not going to have rigid scientific protocols for this, that's going to be 
a problem, yes, right? Yes, just slightly. So they can't rule out an infectious cause for these problems. Like you were saying, looking at the fibers themselves, the studies showed that they weren't regular textile fibers, but instead they were created by cells in the body. And this is very important. So it means that there is a subset of people who do have these fibers generating within their own bodies. They're mainly made out of keratin and collagen, two materials that are found in skin and hair, and very important. I take my collagen in my coffee every morning, but they also come from different layers in the skin. So the base of the fibers attaching to cells matches the cells around them, showing that they're from the body. So they use special staining techniques on these fibers, and this showed them that they didn't have materials from plants or insects. And they also found that some of the blue fibers were actually human hairs with color from pigmentation. It was very rare, but yeah. that was one of the ones that like some of the patients and those are some of the most disturbing photos. You would see these bright, pinkish, bloody, irritated lesions with clearly blue fibers. Wild. Um, wildly curled under the skin. It looked just incredibly wow. painful. Wow. While it can be easy to lump all of these examples into one pot as clinicians, we know that to diagnose someone with a mental disorder, you have to be sure that other factors aren't causing the symptoms. Many medical doctors still think this one disease is always a mental health diagnosis, even though many studies link it to a type of infection. When we're looking at diagnosis of DP, it is certainly a lengthy process and generally takes the following steps. So I feel like every time we've kind of laid out a way to diagnose something, you're going to start with a very careful case history of this person, full background history. Then they look to performing a complete physical examination, laboratory evaluation, including skin scrapings. Maybe it calls for biopsies, blood counts, chemistry profiles, thyroid function tests, and vitamin B12 levels. And then they tend to rule out other medical conditions at this point, medical conditions that can have skin manifestations that appear to be caused by anthropods. So diabetes, atopic dermatitis, there's a number of them that you need to first, like we do, rule out certain sort of medical or maybe substance-induced psychiatric conditions first before we dive into what is just there organically. And then working with experts in these areas, we talked about parasitologists to rule out true infestations, people that are trained to look for whether these are mites or lice or fleas, bed bugs, what have you, and then ruling out other organic causes, allergies, contact dermatitis, those types of infections. And of course, as I just mentioned, ruling out drug abuse, especially in younger or male patients, because that tends to be less common. I don't think people are necessarily aware that that's also a big issue in the homeless communities. Like when, when I was working at the jail doing inmate evaluations, when they're coming in the jail, if someone had been coming from a homeless encampment or they had been unhoused for an extended period of time and not been able to take care of their hygiene, almost inevitably they would be infested with mites or scabies and yes. they would have to be, you know, I'd have to talk to them either in wearing a full gown or in a mask, or I'd be outside the door. And the first thing we would do is, you know, hand them a tube of, you know, this, this cream that would kill the mites because the mites, you can get infected very, very quickly. I remember when we had medical arrestees, we would take them down 
to the jail where you worked because it's a medical facility. And I remember it being closed at times being like, you can't bring anyone here because there's a lockdown due to scabies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it'll happen. Gosh. So the symptoms accompanying uh, delusional parasitosis and mental illness you know, those common symptoms can make differential diagnosis really challenging. In some cases, the individuals who are not affected by Morgellons or delusional parasitosis, but they can exhibit delusional tendencies. And that might be mistaken that they believe they have Morgellons due to exposure via sources like the mm. internet. Big surprise. What? So something else might be going on and they find like, oh, here's this website that tells me I should scrub myself down with a Brillo pad and then pour lemon pledge on it or something. I mean, literally, they'll use yeah. the strangest, strangest home remedies. Now, making it even more difficult to diagnose, Morgellons patients can display what we call neuropsychiatric symptoms and then receive full-on psychiatric diagnoses like bipolar disorder, ADHD, OCD, and like we said, even schizophrenia. Now, patients might also have concurrent psychiatric conditions occasionally leading to these misdiagnoses of psychiatric illnesses that they don't actually possess. I think for all that sounding like a word salad to the audience out there, the, the main message is that real, true psychiatric diagnosis is complex yeah. and it really requires people to not make just blanket labels. And I would also say that medical diagnoses are often the same way. And that's one of the reasons we have so many problems in the medical community is that people, you know, doctors will just say, oh, it's this. And somebody's going, mm, I don't think it is. I've been dealing with this for 20 years. And so anyway, it, uh, emphasis yeah. on we all need to be really responsible in how we look at these things. Right, because some Morgellons patients may have inaccurate beliefs that are completely unrelated to their delusions Right, with incorrect, self-researched internet information. You know, let's not forget the number of websites where these patients meet their you know, limited scientific understandings and other people who are now allowing them to misinterpret their symptoms by being an echo chamber of misinformation. Yeah. So they may actually misinterpret the presence of something like textile fibers or filaments and that sensation of crawling, interpreting it as worms or insects, or in some rare cases, maybe aliens. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it can why happen. Not? <laughs> and then, you know, just to circle back around to what we were saying earlier about the marginalization of female patients by the medical community. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's it's a real thing. Women have historically faced various forms of marginalization and minimization within the medical community. And although there's progress, you know, these issues do persist to some extent, and that negatively impacts women's health care and well-being in the long run. And there's I think there really is a long way to go. Look, women are underrepresented in medical research, leading to a lack of understanding about how diseases and treatments affect women, specifically women. There's gender bias. Symptoms that are more common in women are more likely to be dismissed or attributed to psychological factors. How effed mm, up is that? Of course. And this bias then can delay or prevent a proper diagnosis and treatment. Women's pain and symptoms are downplayed or not taken seriously by medical professionals, and their physical symptoms are sometimes attributed to emotional or psychological factors without proper in medical investigation. And one of the things that's really ironic and sad is that women report that there's equal minimization by female physicians. Oh, yeah. Totally. As male physicians. And what they're saying now is that nurse practitioners and physician's assistants are usually more understanding and accepting. It's something yes. about that medical degree 
that right. ha- that it has to do with. Because hmm. so they're hmm. being taught that in the medical. They're being taught that in medical school. Yeah, they've got to be, and then throw women of color in the mix, and Ugh. it's even it's worse magnified just beyond comprehension but women are disproportionately affected by autoimmune conditions but diagnoses can be delayed due to their complex and varied symptoms being attributed to other causes and some medical professionals lack comprehensive knowledge about women's reproductive health including contraception menopause and conditions like endometriosis This can lead to mismanagement of reproductive health concerns. Women's pain, particularly in relation to conditions like endometriosis, is often undertreated compared to men's pain. This can lead to unnecessary suffering and reduced quality of life. So in it's interesting with the rabbit holes I go down in TikTok with the different algorithms that pop up, depending on who you are, what you look at. One of the big things that's out there that people are talking about, both medical professionals, thankfully some male medical professionals, as well as uh, female patients, is that we don't use local anesthetic to put in or remove IUDs. And if not incredibly discomforting, incredibly painful for some women. And it's just not even thought of, like not even a thing that we consider or that we ask for or anything like that. So just again, another example, but most significantly, mental health concerns among women are sometimes stigmatized or dismissed as hormonal fluctuations, undermining the importance of proper mental health care for women in general. And really, this is just the tip of the iceberg with women of color also experiencing even higher numbers in these areas when you look at the hard numbers. If, if you're not aware of it, really, listeners, you should just Google. And I'm like, I'm sure most of our listeners oh, are of because course. they're so on top of it. But it is horrifying to look at the stats on pregnancy complications that get ignored in women of color constantly, oh, yeah. constantly, constantly, constantly. I mean, just terrible, terrible stories. I think the, I'm not, I don't have the stat in front of you, but I know the infant mortality rate is higher mm-hmm. despite the fact that these, you know, women are, you know, they're following all the protocols. They're doing everything with prenatal care. As well as but, the women dying in childbirth. Right, right. Oh yeah. God, it's awful. I know. So wrapping it up, we have a couple of examples in entertainment, a really, really great and hard to watch, but very good to watch movie from 2006, I believe, which is interesting because 2006 was when Morgellons hmm. came on um, the scene is the movie Bug. And it was based on a stage play by the same name. It was a psychological horror film, but really does come across as incredibly uncomfortable and, and creepy, directed by none other than William Friedkin. And it stars Michael Shannon before he was famous, Ashley Judd, really when she was just knocking out one pretty cool movie after another mm-hmm. and Harry Connick Jr. And Shannon's character is having some kind of experience and clearly it's it evolves very quickly into delusional parasitosis. And then he pulls Ashley Judd, who's his romantic interest, into his delusion. And the story is interesting, like that shared fully ado experience and how their friends try and pull them out. And there's yeah. a scene where they're in a hotel room where they've blocked and taped and foiled off the entire thing trying to keep the bugs out it's really really creepy it's very very visceral and very graphic yeah yeah i i have not watched it i watched the trailer and i was like "Ooh, this looks gross but it also 
looks good. Ooh, we could um, do a watch party for that. That'd be cool. Ooh, we could. We could. So we also have good old criminal minds to do us right on this topic. So season 10, episode four is called The Itch. And in this episode, Atlanta PD invites the behavioral analysis unit to assist in the death investigation of an investigative journalist named Albert Stillman after he wandered into highway traffic. And an eyewitness who tried to help Stillman just before he was run over reported that he was waving his arms in the air, yelling, get them off of me. And it turns out Stillman has no history of mental illness, but his boss discloses that Stillman was using heroin as medication for a Bach problem. Hmm. To thicken the plot, Stillman was scheduled to meet with a source on a story concerning vaccinations when he vanished for three days just before he died. During the investigation, a research scientist of etymology is later found dead, shot to death, the BAU team eventually discovers that both Stillman and the scientist were abducted, meaning they are dealing with a serial killer. No, but... <laughs> on criminal minds? What? what? How's that possible? On In criminal minds, hour? a serial killer? <laughs> In an hour? <laughs> Man, I know. Both of them also had tiny bite marks and deep self-inflicted scratches. They thus come to the conclusion that the perpetrator had delusional parasitosis and was looking for people to support his delusion by making them feel what he feels. When they don't support the delusion, he kills them. That's very creative, actually. It is really creative, <laughs> but it's it also just, you know, going back to, you know, we, we gave our listeners this week an example of a person that acts out of desperation due to a mental health condition, maybe, yeah. and maybe someone who was actually experiencing a version of a legitimate form of Morgellons could act in the same way, but like taking it to the next level that I'm going to make you feel what I feel is like, uh. there was TV. a, there was a, <laughs> I remember there was a TV episode about, I think it might've been on the green arrow series where one of the villains had created a neurological gas that would cause delusional parasitosis, but it would cause it so strongly that their body would actually make it happen. Like their bodies would, like one guy gets sliced by metal butterflies that start coming out of his, his skin. What? And they, so they show up to this body that's just completely like shredded. And it's like, how did this happen? Metal butterflies. Metal butterfly. That's going to be my punk band. <laughs> so thank you guys. This has been a long episode. It's so fascinating though. And I, I hope actually that there will be more legit research done on this for people that are experiencing. I hate to use the word suffering because it's such a loaded term these days in terms mm. of a, an individual's personal experience, but clearly the experience of an, an issue like this, a challenge is, is just incredibly overwhelming and impacts the quality of a person's life. And, you know, we want to show compassion for them. And I hope there is more research in this area. So yeah, folks, we have a live stream coming up on September 16th. That's just a couple of weeks away. It is with a workplace threat assessment psychologist, our wonderful, wonderful colleague, Dr. Ryan. It will be live on YouTube. Please, please log in. It's going to be a good show. We'll take some questions and I'll be asking him a lot of very pointed questions about that process. Yes. The emphasis there is Dr. Scott will be asking him a lot of questions because yes. I forgot I double booked and I'm sorry, I'm not giving up my Halloween Horror Nights tickets. Nope, so I completely understand. I will be there. 
If you're on the Discord, I'll post some pictures, maybe some videos from there. That'll be fun. As well, we have coming up, speaking of watch party, Friday, the 22nd of September. Please hold that date. We are going to do a joint watch party with Nick from the Tennis Podcast and Brad from the Doomsday Podcast, Doomsday History's Most Dangerous Podcast. You guys know I'm a sucker for the disaster films. We are going to be watching Supercell, which is one that came out this year that nobody talked about, probably for a couple reasons, one being a very controversial actor and some of the other cast, you know, let's just say it might it might be a cursed film. I'm just going to start that rumor right now. The that it's... best kind, <laughs> the best kind. But yeah, they'll be stay paying attention to all of our socials. Again, you can always go to our website, our live events, and we put all of that info there. And I started doing community posts on YouTube. So I will post in advance also if you're a subscriber to our YouTube channel of what is coming up because people have found it hard to find what the next date is going to be if they're not listening, you know, all the way to the ends of these episodes sometimes. All right. Thank you guys very much. Please join us next week when we bring you the mysterious death of actress Thelma Todd in our monthly vintage episode. And we'll see you then on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.